the revolutionaries on the left are not going to let you carve out that little space. They're coming for mm. you, right? Mm. So the only way to actually win, to fight the culture war to win, is to assert a positive vision of the good. Because the embrace of the kind of value-neutral liberty, that is an unstable arrangement, right? There's always humans want something more than value neutrality. So if the left is offering a comprehensive, assertive vision of the good and the right is offering live and let live, the left is going to win. And I, I mean, I'm somewhat optimistic because I think a lot of people on the right, particularly after the last five or six years, have begun to understand that. It's difficult to go through the last five or six years and not reach that conclusion. But it has been a problem in conservatism for the last few decades, at least. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. Actually, not exactly correct. This episode is terrible. We had on Nate Hockman, but no, I'm kidding. Nate's fantastic. Uh, we've been wanting to have him on for a while, but he just keeps on putting out banger stories that we want to talk about. Um, but before we get to that, as always, go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast. We're on 69 episodes at this point um, and, and lots of fantastic ones to come. Uh, over 100 hours of content, I think, at this point. Uh, you can go look at AmCanon, which is our aggregation of books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and short pieces uh, that explain the entire contours of how to think about this agenda that we uh, prioritize. You can go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. Uh, if you fill out that form, though, there we'll meet and we'll talk about how to get you substantively involved. Uh, if you're a passive consumer of political content, stop. Um, it's the equivalent of sitting at home masturbating, like go actually do something <laughs> real, <laughs> uh, do something, uh, with your life instead of, uh, being uh, a loser sitting at home. Uh, there is a country to be saved and we want to help you be a part of doing so. If you are, you know, aligned with us on the issues, if you're a cringe, uh, please stay home. Um, uh, but today we had on Nate Hockman, uh, who is, uh, known to many of you, infamous to many, uh, for a fantastic episode. Nate is someone I've known for a while uh, we used to you know be on the phone uh, during COVID and I'd just slowly be listening to him radicalize as he saw the cities burning around him in the summer of 2020 and he's now I think one of the most prominent, interesting young journalists out there today. He's written lots of fantastic, you know, sort of seminal pieces on, on on topics. He's not one of these just like constantly churning out BS style young journalists who's just, you know, content mill for uh, some C-tier publication. He actually writes well-reported, comprehensive, intellectually sound stuff. He recently did uh, a piece for the New York Times on the secularization of the right. He's doing something for the Atlantic on why young conservatives are so radical. He's done stuff on why maybe academic freedom is over. Uh, and he's also done a, uh, a great takedown of uh, one of the least uh, honorable people in the Trump administration, Alyssa Farah. And we talked about all, all of that stuff on this episode. I don't know, Nick, what did, what did you think of Mr. Mr. Hockman? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I went in a little skeptical. I went back and reread uh, his piece in The New York Times before uh, before this interview. And I was like, all right, I'm going to have a couple questions about this. I was I was I was pleasantly surprised, you know, how. Uh, you know, he had he had some ideas, I think, about how uh, we evangelicals can be, uh, you know, better, better positioned in the movement, which I which I appreciated. I do have to say, I think my favorite Nate Hawkman opinion, though we didn't talk about it on the show, is that it's cool to wear backpacks everywhere. Um, <laughs> 
cosine. Speak, 100%. Speaking, speaking in interest. Um, yeah. Both of you look like dorks, actually. Um, <laughs> but that's fine. You both dress the same way. I'm the only person who decided to dress up like a Miami drug dealer today. Anyway, uh, this is why you guys should always listen to the uh, episode on YouTube so you can see what ridiculous thing I've decided to wear and what ridiculous thing Nick has decided to My wear. My wife on any picked given up this shirt. Yes, so. I understand. Yeah. Uh, we know you have a wife. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, Nate is, uh, his primary uh, sinecure at this point is um, as a journalist at a National Review, which I guess is uh, you know, part of his bio, but um, you guys know him as, as Mr. NJ Hockman on the Twitter machine. Uh, we'll go now to Nate uh, for a fantastic episode nate welcome to the podcast um i think lots of people are crying out in horror that you're here but thank you for for coming uh we always like to hear how people got to the point where they are today and uh you know i'm assuming it's some combination of the cia the fbi the nsc people yeah. accuse you of being a fed how exactly did you uh join the intelligence services like well, neither <laughs> confirm nor deny uh, you know um no i haven't been hired for, by the cia yet at least officially mm -hmm. um but I'm at National Review. I'm a Robert Novak Fellow at the Fund for American Studies. And basically, all these are fancy words for saying that conservative publications pay me to write for them. Um, <laughs> but I started uh, coming up, you know, I wasn't raised conservative. I was raised by two liberal Democrats who I love dearly in Portland, Oregon, which is not exactly a hmm. bastion of right wing politics. And I kind of moved right, like I think a lot of young men actually that I know by spending a lot of time on college campuses and kind of being around a lot of all the craziness that we're familiar with in the campus left made me basically think that anyone who's against whatever they're doing is people that I'm on the side of. And which campus specifically did you experience? Colorado College, also not a bastion of right-wing <laughs> politics. Yeah, I mean, what, give me the profile. Like, what kind of university is that? Because I think you know people go to all sorts of different, I mean, some people you know, go to fancy Ivy League schools, mm -hmm. some people like me go to like a big state school, which is a very different environment. What is Colorado College like? It's a small liberal arts college in Colorado Springs, but it's it's more or less the profile of kind of very lefty 2000 person liberal arts colleges where mm -hmm. there's three conservatives and only one of them actually is willing to say they're a conservative, which mm -hmm. happened to be me. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, the campus activism there is very familiar to anyone who spent time on a campus that isn't mm -hmm. a specifically conservative or Christian college. Mm -hmm. And for young people who aren't fully bought into that stuff, it's incredibly alienating. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know a lot of young people, particularly young men, who spend time on college campuses and did not come from conservative backgrounds, mm -hmm. but are behind closed doors actually radical as heck mm -hmm. because they've you know experienced firsthand what the campus left is like and they see the ideology they encounter on campus seeping out into every one of our major institutions, which is alarming. What was speaking out or being out as a conservative like for you on campus? Did you like, I mean, if it's if it's a party of one, I'm assuming you didn't have a club or anything like that. I mean, did, I tried. did your peers know that you were right wing? Like, yeah. how did that actually shake out? Especially because CC was such a small campus, which, again, I think is a lot of young conservatives on small campuses have this experience. Once you say you know, I think abortion is the taking of a human life or something like that on in a in a classroom. It's everyone knows. Right. Mm -hmm. So you kind of you move. There's a red line that you cross. And at that point, you're in it. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you know, I, was, I tried to start a club. I tried to start a conservative magazine. Activists got really mad at that. It was a whole you know situation. But there were a lot of kids who weren't, again, necessarily doctrinally right wing, but were super, super uncomfortable with a lot of the campus activist stuff. And they were the ones who were kind of interested in what I was trying to do and behind closed doors, they'd come up to you and sort of say, you know, I mm -hmm. appreciate what you're doing, et cetera. Uh, but 
there is kind of a dormant, not maybe silent majority, but a silent plurality of kids on campus who are really uncomfortable with this stuff. But someone has to actually be loud and talk about it, which was me. So you bring up young men, and I think that's a very interesting point. You know, in my experience, I went to a small Christian liberal arts school that's slowly being taken over by liberalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And something I think that you notice is a lot of these, a lot of young men are kind of being radicalized through this campus activism that is primarily being led by women. Mm -hmm. Um, It is almost all like a, like all the left-leaning groups on my campus, at least, were run by women. And I think most of the conservative women that I know were not radicalized in in college by any means. They, They came from conservative households and just continued to be that way. What do you think the difference, like, what's the difference in what's happening between the two genders? It's interesting because I actually do think it's more gendered than racial. Like, CeCe was a pretty white, you know, trust fund San Francisco kid. It's Colorado. It is, exactly, right? Uh, It was like a ski town that happened to have a college attached to it. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it, but the the sort of non-white men on campus, a lot of them were on scholarships and from working class backgrounds, which were not woke, to put it Mm -hmm. lightly. So, and they were sometimes the most radical kind of people I knew in terms of just thinking all of this was disgusting. Mm-hmm. So it is a man thing, but it's not necessarily like a white man or even like a straight white man thing. Um, and it, I think it has to do with the fact that for men, just broadly in American culture, we've completely lost any kind of sense that masculinity is good. And for any young man who has, you know, any kind of testosterone levels whatsoever, being told that they have to be feminine and to be feminized mm-hmm. is incredibly alienating and they feel intuitively instinctively that something is wrong but there's no outlet for it so mm-hmm. that's what drives i think a lot of them to look to the right because the right is the only aspect of american life that's still actually saying it's okay to be a man particularly a young man how did your national writing career stuff start um when did you become an official scribbler <laughs> well it started because i just liked you know making campus activists angry so i started writing you know op-eds for the for the local school paper and that so kind of goes from there you're fed off the hate then so <laughs> when people are tweeting at you saying this Whom's is terrible us? i hate it <laughs> yeah yeah well again like i said for for me like a lot of people it started as a visceral reaction I mean, I'm not afraid to admit that at all. Right before there was any kind of ideological construct, it was just that I I hate these people, mm-hmm. right? And I, I I'm like I'm, I'm I'm with whoever is against them, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you sort of realize, okay, so conservatives are against them. So what do conservatives think? And you kind of go from there. And then you start writing for conservative publications. You intern at a conservative publication. There's a conservative pipeline. You yeah. Know. Intra the right, you've had an ideological evolution as well. Originally, when I first met you, you were not i would say the most right-wing person on the right Mm -hmm. what changed that so that was i was back home in portland in summer 2020 because of covid and i was nice summer it was quiet well yeah portland (laughs) very peaceful you know not that much going on and for me again because i was coming from a left-wing background when i first sort of decided that i was a conservative it was like well, of course, I'm not one of the icky conservatives, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. I'm one of the good ones because part of that's just a survival mechanism on campus. And it becomes impossible to hold on to those priors, for me at least, when you're watching people burn down the country you love. And mm-hmm. in Portland, you know, it was perhaps more, more, more potent than almost anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of already in some of the institutional conservative beltway sort of milieu by the time that 2020 rolled around. But I was seeing this massive disconnect between the way that they were talking about issues and what I was actually seeing on the ground, right? You know, I'd go out at night and see people just 
burn down buildings. And then I'd wake up the next day and, you know, a lot of the conservatives, some of whom I, you know, have a lot of respect for, would be more worried about Trump's tweets or something, right? And it's like, it's just felt like this massive disconnect. And that, again, for a lot of young conservatives in particular, I think makes you really have to reassess what conservatism means to you because it, it has to be something that's capable of resisting the cultural revolution that began in summer 2020. Do you think your ideological journey is unique or do you think most young people have have been right? And just say in, you know, as many words, what exactly do you mean by the fact that you were radicalized? Like, what would you say are the core tenets of the conservatism that you now believe in and champion? To me, I would just describe myself as a culture warrior, first and foremost. I think that's the easiest way to really think of it. There's a variety of different, you know, radicalization is a charged term. What does it mean in terms of a particular policy issue? What list does it get you on? That's right. <laughs> well, as a Fed, actually, I'm you know, exempted from those lists. Yeah. But to me, what became apparent watching what I really do think was a cultural revolution that was sort of kicked off in summer 2020, it was that you don't, you can talk about marginal tax rates until the cows come home, right? Or occupational licensing reform. Yeah. But it doesn't really mean much. African hair braiding will save the republic. That's right. <laughs> but it doesn't really mean much if uh, you're teaching you know, the entire next generation to despise the country they're going to inherit and mm -hmm. you're justifying essentially burning down everything that our forefathers built. Mm -hmm. You can have the lowest marginal tax rates in the world. It mm -hmm. won't really mean much, right? So it's to me, it's about first and foremost putting whatever it takes to resist the cultural revolution at the forefront of what conservatism means. And that you know leads to any number of different public policy sort of outcomes, but it's a disposition and a set of priorities first before it's any specific policy debate. Are you a congressional office with interns this summer or an intern yourself looking to learn more about the America First agenda? Then you need to participate in AM Fridays, a brand new program by American Moment designed to teach young staff in DC the basics of what it means to be America First. Over the course of the summer for 10 weeks, American Moment has rented out the top floor of the Monocle Restaurant in Washington, D.C., and will be bringing in speakers from across the conservative movement to talk about issues from immigration to trade to foreign policy to innovation to how to support the family and much more. If you'd like your interns to participate in this program, email info at AmericanMoment.org with the subject line AM Fridays, and we'll be sure to add them to the list. One of the interesting pieces that you've written uh, over the last few years, and, and there have been a lot of them. I generally like the way that you go about writing, which is you're not the guy who's like putting out like three hot takes a day, just like <laughs> churning out garbage that could be tweets. You're Only Twitter is the out place garbage where the garbage is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but one of the interesting, I think, overlaps between how your worldview has changed and an aspect of your origin story is you wrote a piece uh, about free speech in college campuses not too long ago for the Columbia Review of Books, and you took, I think, a somewhat heterodox take on free speech, which is that you think it's kind of overrated. Why? Academic freedom, yeah, yeah, Claremont Review Books. It was, um, it was essentially, again, what I was pointing to is that the con conservatives initially were very skeptical of academic freedom. So in these broader discussions, a lot of what we're talking about, I resist the impulse that I think some of our young radical friends have to, th to sort of disavow conservatism always and everywhere mm -hmm. and say that the entire conservative movement was always broken you know, there were there, conservatism is a complicated, intellectually rich and diverse movement. But if you look back to the first generation of conservatives, they were much more right wing than a lot of the sort of classical liberalism that passes for conservatism today. And one of the examples of that is the fact that almost uniformly, William Buckley, Russell Kirk, you know, Wilmore Kendall, 
all of these people were criticizing academic freedom because they're saying this is a liberal concept. The idea that liberal education and the university is this value neutral ex exercise and sort of you know a, a trading in the marketplace of ideas is not what the university is supposed to be. It's supposed to be about virtue and truth, mm -hmm. and virtue and truth require a certain amount of sort of discriminatory approach to teaching. Right? You can't you can't treat what is wrong and what is right as on equal footing. You're supposed to teach people what is right, and I think partially just because of the defensive crouch that a lot of conservatives are in in the universities today, they've they've adopted academic freedom as a sort of defense mechanism, mm -hmm. like the last line of defense, because they don't have the power to assert they feel like a vision of the good anymore. But my point is that the embrace of the sort of value neutral liberal academic freedom is actually what degraded the academy in the first place. And we need a much more robust vision of learning and truth than the one I think on offer from a lot of conservative academics today. When we have such a, I think, distorted view of the word liberty now, mm -hmm. like you, I think a lot of people in our portion of the right experience this now, like you hear the word, you know, something for liberty or liberty this, and we all just kind of cringe a little bit, you know, like thinking about what liberty has become. And it's because it's kind of the first, you know, the first place people go to, to really try to quote unquote defend their ideas. So, so you have it with the education debate, but you also have it with, um, within evangelicalism too, like the first place they go. And I know we're going to get to talking about your, your, your piece about this, but, um, the first place they go is religious liberty. Like, mm -hmm. oh, well, we, we just need to make sure that everyone's free. And then if everyone's free to do whatever they want, maybe some of them will pick up our ideas. I think it's kind of a, uh, an intellectually and tactically lazy way to approach the, the, the war. Right. And it's understandable to the point about the, the universities that this that conservatives, particularly social conservatives, have adopted a kind of defensive crouch, right? Where there's a sense that because we've lost the culture, we don't control the cultural institutions anymore. The best we can hope for is to try to carve out our little space of American life and just defend that and appeal to sort of value neutral liberty. The problem is that that doesn't work. You know, the the kind of the, the revolutionaries on the left are not going to let you carve out that little space. They're coming for mm -hmm. you, right? Mm -hmm. So the only way to actually win, to fight the culture war to win, is to assert a positive vision of the good. B because the embrace of the kind of value neutral liberty, that is an unstable arrangement, right? There's always, humans want something more than value neutrality. So if the left is offering a comprehensive, assertive vision of the good, and the right is offering live and let live, the left is gonna win. And I, I mean, I'm somewhat optimistic because I think a lot of people on the right, particularly after the last five or six years, have begun to understand that. It's difficult to go through the last five or six years and not reach that conclusion. But it has been a problem in conservatism for the last few decades, at least. Yeah, it's not whether, you know, we have a moral law and moral government and moral ideas. It's which. That's right. Yeah, which one? Exactly. Silence is violence beats don't tread on me every mm -hmm. single time. Mm -hmm. um, one of the... Uh, aspects of this conversation that I think gets people very angry, especially if they've been around for a while, is when you say, you know, conservatives used to have a more circumspect uh, perspective on a lot of these issues. Well, they they didn't for like the last 25 years or so up until very recently. Um, what's your theory and chronology of where and why the right went wrong for, say, the period from the 1990s to 2010 or 15. It's, I mean, this is obviously, you know, a question that 
people much more qualified than I have uh, to answer the question of written entire. Yeah, books but they about. all have like a stake in it. So <laughs> and Sir Rob doesn't read. So. Right, that's a good point. I have, have heard that about Sir Rob. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, Sir Rob reads in sort of tweet tweet length. Uh, Correct. Uh, so the I think the fall of the Berlin Wall was a, obviously a major sort of turning point for conservatism because the old conservative arrangement fusionism was always incoherent ideologically right mm -hmm. the idea that i mean and this is again to the to the point about there being conservatives we're always talking about this Russell, but also like who cares if it's incoherent right it worked well, like for the purposes of political right coalition. right yeah. but in turn but it only worked really because anti-communism was the glue that held it together mm -hmm. this is not new information right but, i mean russell kirk always hated fusionism he wrote this essay in the 60s called libertarians the chirping sectaries he said <laughs> advocating a union of uh, libertarians and conservatives is like advocating a union of ice and fire right so there are always dissenters, including some in the mainstream conservative movement. But what held it together was that the they were both anti-communists. They wanted to beat the Soviet Union. I think what happened is that because of the attempt to make fusionism into a coherent ideology rather than just a sort of marriage of convenience between two different ideologies, everything became libertarianized. Mm -hmm. Because to make it a coherent ideology, if you actually take fusionism seriously, what it's saying is that everyone has to really be a libertarian. It's just that libertarian ends sometimes where we're down to traditionalist mm. to traditional traditionalist ends. So the once the Cold War fell apart and we didn't have the glue that held everything together, conservatives had to choose. Mm -hmm. And they ended up choosing libertarianism because that's sort of what fusionism actually militated in favor of. Why did social conservatives get rolled? Well, one, I mean, there's a bunch of different explanations for it. One just has to do with funding, right? I mean, uh, up until recently, there's always been focus on the family, et cetera, but the, the real sort of dominant players and the ones with a lot of, you know, chamber of commerce and business money behind it were the libertarians, not mm -hmm. the traditionalists. Um, but I also think just that for a very long time, uh, a lot of people in the conservative establishment have been scared of cultural issues. And the social conservatives were always seen as that sort of icky people that everyone in the base, you know, they actually believe those things, but, you know, we're really about marginal tax rates, you know, yeah. we're the serious people. So you were talking about this in the beginning about how you were like uh, uh, the good kind of conservative <laughs> or the good kind of Republican or whatever. Uh, and, and I'm assuming a lot of those issues that you were neglecting to talk about were, were some of these social issues. Why would, why now do you think that point of view is wrong and why should conservatives really want to tackle these issues. Well, to what you were talking about, Nick, earlier, it has everything to do with whether or not conservatism is actually a coherent, positive vision of human flourishing, or if it's just this assertion of sort of value neutral, live and let live. Uh, limited government is a fine thing. I, you know, I believe in the Constitution. I think the founders were geniuses, right? So this is not to degrade the principle of political liberty properly understood, but all of that only rests on a basic set of shared cultural prerequisites that make people capable of self-government. And if you leave those issues, which are cultural issues fundamentally by the wayside, then limited government is not going to be around for that long, right? So again, that was something that I was really sort of having to reckon with in 2020 because it became apparent that these are the defining issues of our time. And you know, just like our forefathers had to confront a militant global communism abroad, we're confronting a militant, anti-American, licentious progressivism at home. That's the challenge of our time. So again, I don't degrade previous generations of conservatives for making anti-communism the core of their project. That made sense. That you know was the rational thing to do. That's not the issue anymore. Today, the issue is domestic and our enemies are, for are domestic, not foreign. All right. 
all this feels almost like throat clearing. So uh, <laughs> let's get to the meat of the question here. Um, I've been informed that in the New York Times, uh, you wrote that God is dead and you have killed him. Uh, <laughs> what, what, the, the religious right is, is gone. Everything has failed. Uh, explain what you wrote. Uh, for uh, the gray lady and uh, <laughs> make, make your case. Just more proof that I'm a fed you know, right, for the Times. <laughs> yeah. So the point of the New York Times piece was basically just to assess what secularization means for the American right. It's no co- secret that America is secularizing less and less Americans are going to church. But one thing that I think, one aspect of that conversation that has been not discussed as much, everyone talks about the decline in like liberal Protestantism, right? And that's where the decline in church going started. It was the liberal mainline denominations. No one in Episcopalian service now is under the age of 70. Um, <laughs> but what there was a long, there was, there was a period of a couple decades where religious conservatives would sort of crow smugly about, oh, all the liber- liberal Protestants aren't going to church anymore, but we're safe because, you know, we have, we actually still believe in things. We actually still teach the Bible. And what happened was that secularization, secularization came for the theologically conservative denominations too. And now you're seeing a rapid fall off in church going rates in the conservative parts of the church as well as the liberal parts of the church. And what that means is that conservatism, both the Republican Party politically, but also just I think the conservative movement is going to be more secular, barring some great reawakening or something, um, than it has been in the past. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a good thing. I am a social conservative. So I am someone that I thinks the decline in religion is a tragedy and a massive, maybe even existential issue for the country. But it's important to sort of assess analytically what's happening. And my point, I was mostly focusing again on the culture war and social conservatism, was that there's always going to be a kind of social conservatism. The social conservative impulse is a human impulse. It doesn't go away. But without religion, it's going to look different. And I think it's going to look a lot more like a lot of the cultural issues that we're debating today, which most of the old religious right is still on board with, but also appeals to a much broader sort of secular range of voters, right? You don't have to be religious to hate critical race theory or to think that there are only two genders or to think that borders exist and that they're a good thing, right? It's not like the old religious issues like abortion and marriage, which were religious. Well, but here's the thing, though. Isn't it just those are the most recent revolutionary vanguards of the left? And at the time where it was a different issue that was, you still had the same slightly broader than just religious conservatives coalition. I mean, is, is it feels like we're talking about two separate trends here that, that you may be correlating and, and you may be right about this, which is that you have secularization going on and also the left's march has continued to go on and the issues that just so happen to be the most salient right now are critical race theory and transgenderism. But if for whatever reason their project had been delayed 10 years, would it just be gay marriage and weed legalization or something? Well, it might be. Yeah. But the point is that the project wasn't delayed. The mm-hmm. left's march through the institutions continues apace. Mm-hmm. And so these this is the state of the country and of the culture war, right? These are the stakes. We're not with a small blip, you know, last week, which 47 Republicans signed on to. Uh, we were not really debating the definition of marriage anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, from the social conservative perspective, that's a tragedy. And we wouldn't be talking about transgenderism if we hadn't first destroyed the meaning of marriage. But this is where we are. And conservatives, ha- I think, just have to engage with the reality of the situation and sort of proceed accordingly. Do you think that the decline of the of the country over the last, you know, 20, 30 years tracks with the decline of religiosity and church attendance? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the sort of correlation, correlation causation, like the decline of the country has happened for a variety of different reasons. Mm-hmm. But you cannot separate 
the sort of degeneration of American culture from the decline in church going, both for sociological and theological reasons, moral reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Like Christianity teaches men to be moral. And I think a lot of the moral degradation we see today is because men aren't Christian anymore, mm -hmm. but also just because of the sort of, you know, the bowling alone thesis, right? That churches and civic institutions create this fabric for society that forms people beyond just the basic theological and moral commitments. And what you have instead is a bunch of dudes sitting in their basement you know, watching porn all day, right? Rather than going to church and meeting a woman and, you know, getting married and having kids. So so how do you propose to move forward without some kind of glue like that to, to hold people together? So obviously the best thing to do would be just if everyone became Christian again, right? <laughs> that's obviously the ideal, but part of conservatism- what the West. That's know? right. So, I mean, but part of conservatism is engaging with Conservatism is sort of political pessimism operationalized, right? So we're always a little pessimistic. It's engaging with the reality of the situation as it is rather than as we'd like it to be. So for me, one thing recognizing that the religious right is still here, there's still millions of voters in the Bible Belt. So part of one of the core parts of the sort of new cultural conservative project is to advance their interests as much as possible within political constraints um, and to completely destroy the revolutionary left that would basically, you know, root them out. But it's also to try to hold together the aspects of the unifying American culture, which aren't necessarily explicitly religious, but are still crucially important, right? So again, when you talk about something like critical race theory, it's, there are religious elements to all of this, mm -hmm. but the the war against critical race theory is about a war for a shared sense of American identity, of which Christianity is an important part, but it's not the only part. The war for borders is about a cohesive sense of American identity, right? All of these things are culture war issues that we should be fighting regardless of the role of religion in them. And religion should be an important part of the whole entire conversation. But as our base secularizes, there are important fights to fight outside of the sort of traditional social issues of abortion and marriage. So so define these two baskets for me. What is the basket of issues that was affiliated with the religious right and what 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 is the unifying theme of them and what is the basket of issues that define a more secular but still culturally conservative right and what unifies them? Right. So the explicitly biblical focus of the religious right was basically school prayer, marriage, abortion. Okay. Right. And before a marriage is the mainstreaming of homosexuality, just in general, um, the secular issues or the, at least the religiously agnostic issues, they're not explicitly secular because religious people are still on the right on most of these issues is sort of American identity and political alienation, which means critical race theory, transgenderism, immigration are the sort of the three that I focus on. And you can also talk about something like big tech. Right. There's a variety of different sort of axes. But, but those issues have been salient in American politics for a very long time. I mean, fights over school textbooks are as old as time itself. Mm -hmm. You can find a blow up about that every few years for the last 50. Um, immigration is an issue like as old as the last 50 years. Well, but the religious right was often on the wrong side of immigration. So this sure. is so this is one of the points, the, the sort of cheekiest part of my of my but was the conservative movement. All parts of them were okay. and, and the religious right, you know, being very powerful in social conservatism. Mm -hmm. And um, what about the Republican Party? These are all different things. But yeah, well, the Republican Party, too. I mean, the height of the religious rights power was Bush and Bush mm -hmm. did amnesty or mm -hmm. tried to do amnesty. Right. So the again, the sort of the cheekiest part of my essay, and I'm still sort of happily surprised the New York Times actually let me keep it in, was quoting Sam Francis, who's a controversial <laughs> paleoconservative theorist. And the reason that I thought he was interesting to quote was that. He was this hard right 
theorist who was a critic of Christianity. So it was important to sort of look at what he was saying because I was trying to figure out what a sort of culture war conservatism would look like without explicitly having Christianity at its fore. And he talks about the religious right, not necessarily Christianity, but the sort of political religious right as a kind of false consciousness for the right wing base because he was saying their focuses were too narrow and they often had blind spots on issues like immigration. Now, I think that's too that's not giving enough credit to the religious right in a lot of important ways. But it's true that the kind of way that political Christianity was mobilized was specific to issues like marriage and abortion and school prayer to specifically religious issues, which left out the sort of full stakes of the culture war, which implicate issues like immigration and often gave them a blind spot on those issues. And so while the decline of religion and religiosity are absolutely bad things for the country. The I was trying to look for sort of the, the the light spots within all of this, and I think the most optimistic take is that the right is actually better situated to understand the full implications of the culture war and all of the issues that it does implicate than it might have been in an era where social conservatism just meant marriage and abortion. Interesting. Um, talking about this critical race theory thing specifically. But I think it can be applied to a broader basket of issues. Do you think an element of the secularized rights agenda is basically not life on doctrine or libertarian terms, but ultimately libertarian priors, which is leave me alone? Is it only a reaction to a very aggressive, affirmative left that wants to impose its way of life on the country and is trying to beat it back? Or do you think that a secular right would be capable of imposing its own vision of life on the rest of the country. Well, I don't know. Do you think Ron DeSantis is a leave me alone guy? I mean, to me, Ron DeSantis is a good example of this, right? So Ron DeSantis and you know Tucker Carlson, these are people are pointing to who they are social conservatives as far as I'm concerned, or at least they're culture war conservatives, but they are not speaking about the culture war in explicitly religious terms, mm-hmm. right? You know, Jerry Falwell or, you know, to, to an extent, Pat Buchanan even would, you know, get up on the stump and quote scripture, right? And talk about restoring sort of biblical values. DeSantis doesn't really, and I I love DeSantis, but he doesn't really speak in those terms for the most part. It doesn't mean that religious conservatives don't like DeSantis because I think he's fighting for a lot of the issues they care about, but he and a lot of the other sort of new culture war conservatives are approaching this in a way that is more secular or religiously mm-hmm. agnostic. But I think that someone like DeSantis is not just a you know, leave me alone guy. I think he actually understands the stake of the stakes of the culture war in a much more sort of significant way than a lot of social conservatives in the Bush era. Will religion end up being to the right what race is to the left? Unpack that. So, you know, I'm thinking like this is stuff kind of outside of our wheelhouse. so You don't see it, but like, you know, the the way the figures like Al Sharpton or, you know, the NAACP, you know, groups that are specifically for the advancement of certain ethnic groups on, on the left and in the Democratic Party, they are constituencies that are are considered important coalitional aspects, constituencies to be managed, to be spoken to as constituencies. Um, and you can tell because like there are specific events, organizations, people, activist leaders affiliated with them. For the last 50 years or so, or maybe maybe you know, for 1970 through 2010, the religious right and the right were overlapping enough Venn diagrams that they weren't really a constituency. It was all there was, or at least for the purposes of, um, uh, you know, 
doing politics in, say, Republican primaries, you are only really speaking to the religious right. Now, as the religious right is a lower and lower percent of the overall right of center, will it also become a constituency that Republican elected officials talk to and in the way that, you know, racial groups are on the left of center? You know, in terms of like the, the premise, what you're describing about the way that the left sort of mobilizes racial subgroups as interest groups, to me, politically speaking, that's actually a perfect description of how the Republican Party has treated the religious right. It's It might be that the religious right or social conservatives represented the majority of Republican voters. Mm-hmm. But one of the major problems with Republican Party politics over the last few decades is that their political leadership treated them as an interest group. Mm-hmm. So if anything, even as religion declines, I think, I hope, and I think there are some optimistic signs about this, that the Republican Party agenda is going to cohere around the culture war mm-hmm. as it's organizing, totalizing mm-hmm. force in a way that it actually didn't mm-hmm. in, in, in the era with the, where the religious right was prominent. Well, and, and this is another interesting thing, like uh, the analogy I'd make here is that let's take any given state, you know, medium to large state, if it's R plus 20, it tends to be governed a lot less conservatively than like an R plus right. five state. Mm-hmm. Because once it, it, a lo- super majorities breed complacency in all things, and they also lead to co-optation. People get infiltrated, leaders are are managed and, and sort of negotiated from the outside. But once you're small enough, you actually get the, the separating out of different constituent groups. Like in an R plus five state, people who are gonna be liberals are gonna be Democrats. In our plus 20 state, people who are gonna, who are liberals may end up just being Republicans if they want political mm-hmm. power. As the religious right becomes a smaller portion of the broader right, it may actually get sharper in its effectiveness in getting what it wants because there's fewer leaders that have been co-opted from the inside. Not just that, and I agree with that, but I also think that the, again, this is my attempt to do sort of a, what's the best way forward for social mm-hmm. conservatives in a less than perfect scenario, which is what we're working with. The religious right, even though it's in decline in terms of religiosity, because the culture war issues of today and the sort of idiom that the right talks about them in is more secular, they actually have a bigger coalition to work with mm-hmm. and an opportunity to be the leaders of that mm-hmm. coalition. So the the I think there's a culturally conservative majority in America for the first time in decades. The kinds of Clinton voters who might have been put off by a right that sort of exclusively talks about gay marriage, for example, is very amenable to a right that talks about transgenderism and critical race theory mm-hmm. and immigration, right? So this is an opportunity for the religious right, I think, because while they as a constituency are smaller, they have a lot of political experience, they have a certain amount of political institutions, and they actually have elect an electoral coalition that I think is much more powerful than the one that they had for the last few decades, perfect example, someone that I pointed to, Donald Trump, not exactly personally speaking a picture of pious Christian you know, um, virtue, but was one of the greatest presidents for religious conservative priorities. You know, Roe v. Wade being overturned would not have happened if Donald Trump was elected, wasn't elected, and Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected were it not for the introduction of this kind of secular culture war energy. That to me is a roadmap forward for religious conservatives. You had a great quote in this in this piece from uh, Andrew Walker who is mm-hmm. awesome I, 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 yeah. I like him a lot real real solid guy but he says uh, in your piece we must not allow evangelical political priorities to be co-opted by functional pagans simply because we share a limited set of political objectives how do you think 
religious conservatives should be thinking about how to exert as much influence as possible over the social conservative movement. Yeah, it's a really important question. I wanted to quote that entire column basically from Walker and it was, we had to, it's, yeah. it was an amazing column. Um, but he was basically getting to that fundamental question, which is recognizing the state of play and recognizing that on the one hand, there is this kind of ascendant culture war majority. But on the other hand, it's much more secular, much more licentious, represented by, you know, what people call barstool conservatives, Dave Portnoy, et cetera, who have views that should horrify social conservatives, right? That cannot be the center of the culturally conservative coalition from the social conservative mm -hmm. perspective. But I think if we think coalitionally, there's a way very easily for the religious right to win in ways that might not have there might not have been opportunities for that in the past if they can speak to the issues that those voters care about mm. while also wielding the political power that those voters are willing to give them in a way that is you know conducive to their ends so you have to when you think coalitionally you have to make compromises you have to think about the prudent time to talk about this issue versus that issue mm. but again roe v wade being the organizing objective of the religious right since the 1970s was achieved because they were capable of existing in a coalition with voters that they fundamentally disagreed with on any number of issues. And you had religious conservatives who took the evangelicals who voted for Trump to task as being immoral. But yeah. to my mind, they were thinking coalitionally. This is politics. Uh, what do you think of the, the barstool conservative concept? What percentage of the right in this new, more secular coalition that you think defines what it is today <clears throat> is barstool conservatives? And, and what are they? And I guess, what are your thoughts on the barstool conservative himself, Dave Portnoy, who now <laughs> says that he's going to vote for Biden over Roe. Yeah, well, I don't have there's a lot of love for Dave Portnoy these days. I thought that he's he posted two like Roe videos, one after the leak and then once when it was actually overturned. And the second one was even worse than the first one. Yeah. I mean, it's just he had this line about, you know, maybe we should think about the fact that the Constitution was written by, you know, old white dead slaveholders or something. Like, <laughs> like, okay, like buying <laughs> uh, the enemy's rudder. I was gonna. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, imagine wanting to murder like your mistress's children so badly that you're willing to just like completely go woke, right? Yeah. Like that's you can tell he's telling on himself, right? Like if that you can tell that that was his priority above all else, and he's willing mm -hmm. to throw out everything that's made the right like him for the last mm -hmm. five years because he loves abortion so much, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't really know what barstool conservatism means, and it might become more incoherent. You know, I the I think the, the barstool conservative term was really useful for understanding a certain ethos, which very much is still a part of the Republican Party base. Um, I stuck more to sort of a secular culture war conservatism, although it's not as you know uh, it's not as smooth to say that mm. because I think the the issue is not it's the the barstool conservative stuff makes people think of Dave, Dave Portnoy and I think a lot of these voters while they might be like moderately pro choice moderately pro gay they're not so ideologically committed to an issue like abortion mm -hmm. that they're willing to vote for Biden if Roe gets overturned you know yeah the funny thing about the term barstool conservative is I think what probably defines a barstool conservative above all else is that they don't vote <laughs> that's like, also uh, a good point like yeah. and and, and th that is ultimately why they may end up being politically irrelevant is because they have nothing to motivate them politically. And so why would they get engaged? I mean, maybe Portnoy is going to, you know, whip up the entirety of the Barstool <laughs> readership into voting for Democrats because of Roe. Yeah, I doubt it. I, I think doubt it lose too. a lot of leader yeah. readership. There's a weird, interesting, internecine distinction to be made between, I think you've made this before, an old Roe conservative and a Barstool conservative, mm -hmm. which I think an old Roe conservative is definitely a thing. Like the kinds of guys on campuses who wear Reagan Bush shirts That's right. who are like frat guys like that is an actual political constituency 
Barstool is, I think, less so. Like it's, and and there is a distinction to be had there. Yeah. I I don't know how to completely conceptualize. No, I th- it. I think it's an important distinction. Old row conservatives are in the tent. Mm-hmm. You know, they're on our team, right? You know, they might not live Christian lifestyles yeah. or whatever. They wear right? MAGA but hats. Gonna, they wear MAGA hats, right? Yeah. Um, the the Barstool conservative stuff again. I, this is why I think it's less useful after the entire row situation because I think Portnoy's comments on row were not. At, we're not actually indicative of what a lot of the sort of quote unquote barstool conservatives think, mm-hmm. right? I think most of them are agnostic on abortion. Mm-hmm. Like if you came and did a full, you know, abortion ban or something, they might kind of balk, mm-hmm. but they're probably pretty comfortable with like what DeSantis was doing in Florida, mm-hmm. right? They're probably, they're, they're really grossed out by late-term abortion, right? It's much more inchoate. Yeah. And most Americans, by the way, it, abortion isn't their top two or three issues, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of these guys, I think are gonna stay within the tent because they're so anti-woke. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them don't vote to your point, but I think part of the potency of the kind of culture war energy that we're talking about right now is that it's pushing them to become politicized because people are coming for their kids, they're coming for their schools, right? They're coming for their sports teams, right? Like there's a sense that the sort of revolutionary left is on the march. And a lot of these apolitical types who were sort of soft center-right culturally before, but didn't care, didn't vote, have been mobilized and are going to continue to get mobilized until the left becomes less crazy, which I think is not going to happen anytime soon. What do you think the ceiling on what the more secularized right can achieve is? Okay, gets the critical race theory out of the schools, mm-hmm. um, you know, winds back some of the transgender craziness, maybe even gets some immigration restriction. What else can it do? It's a good question. And when you talk about sort of making compromises, like I don't think these voters are going to go for like overturning Obergefell, right? Yeah. So that's a conversation social conservatives need to have, right? It's from the social conservative perspective, changing the definition of marriage was a mistake. But if we want to win elections, do we make overturning Obergefell, you know, the primary? I mean, if you poll like self-identifying Christians, even they're not particularly interested. 55% of Republicans now support, you know, same-sex marriage, right? That's something I was talking about, right? So that's one of these issues where you think coalition, it's like, okay, you can get abortion legislation, you can protect religious liberty, you can get you know, you can talk about religious schools, right? All of these things, and you can keep them within the tent, but there are lines that religious conservatives have to think about con- the consequences of crossing. Mm-hmm. And I think something like gay marriage is probably going to be mm-hmm. that line for the coalition. We'll see, though. I want to pivot to something completely different. Mm-hmm. You recently went after um, someone who uh, amuses me greatly. Near and dear to your heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, obviously, we care a lot about personnel here at American Moment, and you recently did an expose on, I think, one of the worst people who worked in the Trump administration, Alyssa Farah. What did you find? Why did she catch your attention? <laughs> well, Farah had been viscerally annoying me for months, and you know, you and everyone else. Well, that's so that's the that's the really funny thing, right? Is I so as I was sort of thinking about writing the piece, I was sort of whipping myself up in frenzy, like I oh, she's annoying me. I'm gonna write this piece, right? And so I was, you know, DMing people, talking to people, um, and something that I sort of realized throughout the writing process, and then really when the piece blew up after I wrote it, was that everyone (laughs) you know like it's and i think it's just uh, the disingenuousness thing but the hilarious thing about this piece well i should back up for a second and just say so the piece was about Alyssa farah she was an aide in the trump white house she basically walked through her like career trajectory right so she came up she originally started world net daily which is like the obama birtherism conspiracy you know her dad paul farah basically like started the obama birther conspiracy um so that was her start to politics very principled conservative um and she sort of came up through you know mark meadows world freedom caucus etc she came into the trump administration 2017 2018 you know was in pence world for a little bit moved to Department of Defense and then spent like the last eight months as a comms person for the for the for the White House. 
Um, and she was a sort of traditional partisan flunky, you know, was out there sort of echoing the talking points, um, including a lot of the talking points that like her brand of kind of, you know, hardcore never Trump or hates now, right? She was defending the Brad Raffensperger call. You know, she was out there saying, you know, Trump is just trying to investigate fraud, which isn't just in Georgia, it's everywhere. She was talking about a rigged election in Georgia, right? Uh, she's talking about, you know, trying to connect with the Americans who have real concerns about all the fraud we saw in the 2020 election, right? Like real kind of doing what it, she needed to do to sort of, even though she didn't actually believe it, to sort of, um, because she thought she was going to get on Fox News afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was always just about TV for her, right? So she tries to get on Fox News afterwards and they give the spot to Kaylee McEnany. So they stop calling. Uh, and so she goes to CNN instead. And surprise, surprise, over the course of the next 12 months, every single thing she ever said she believed you know, did a 180. She's now auditioning for The View. She's a CNN contributor. And she has emerged as the most annoying kind of like <laughs> capital P, capital C principled conservative who spends all of her time live tweeting the Jan 6 committee, uh, has disavowed all of her friends, talks about how she was the only principled conservative. And her line now is that she only went into the Trump administration to try to sort of Miles Taylor him, you know, try to protect against his worst instincts, which is blind by the fact that she was- you As know, a comm staffer? <laughs> exactly. Well, this is the other thing, right? Is like her, those stories she tells inflates her actual importance in the administration. I don't know if Trump even really know who she was. All the time she's like, well, I was advising the president about this back in the day. It's like, no, you weren't. Like, <laughs> I, you know, anyways, but the, the hilarious thing is that- <clears throat> I wrote it in a content neutral way so you could hate her from either the Trump or the never Trump perspective. Mm -hmm. So the hilarious thing is once the article dropped, because the whole point is she just doesn't believe in anything. She mm -hmm. flipped on everything. The article dropped, you had Donald Trump Jr. tweeting at at one point, being like, you know, this grifter. And you had Alexander Vindman's wife <laughs> tweeting it on the other side, right? Being like, you know, I can't believe her. She doesn't believe anything, right? So it's this coalition, you know, handshake meme of, uh, of like hardcore never Trumpers and like the Trump family who both share a distaste for someone who just basically is about her own self-advancement and you know doesn't actually believe in anything. How many Alyssa Ferris do you think were in the Trump administration? <laughs> you might know that better than I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, a ton I, of them. I get the sense it was more than, more than a few. Yeah, I mean, very few of them. I'll put it this way. <clears throat> when you're a comm staffer, prostituting yourself post-administration looks a lot like trying to get on TV. So mm -hmm. there's very public elements to your you know, self-flagellation, which Alyssa Ferris did. Um, if you're a policy staffer, it looks like, you know, going to Fortune 500 company being like, I promise I didn't believe any of this yeah. stuff. Please hire me to be yeah. the VP of government affairs. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of that. I mean, again, the overlapping Venn diagrams of actually MAGA and competent in the administration was probably about 10% mm -hmm. of the 4,000 by the end. It was yeah. bad, bad situation, maybe up to 25% if you take strained definitions of both of those words. Alyssa Farrow was not one of them. And what's really scary is how many people... For, for every one Alyssa Farrow, for every one Miles Taylor, there's probably 30 people mm -hmm. who are very like-minded to them who we don't know about. Um, but yeah, she is she has now been uh, taking a victory lap after National Review put out an editor's uh, uh, piece on, you know, opposing the the gay marriage vote in the house and that's Senate. right and she is like man i'm more and more glad national review went it's after the me. tone <laughs> that bothers me so much right like this sort of like <laughs> now I'm, i don't feel so bad about national review going after me right anyway they're gonna call you a sexist for 99 percent of the things well, you just said yeah the, i mean the, the the one other thing is um that needs to be said is so she had this vanity fair puff piece mm -hmm. done on her um which was clearly her just trying to audition mm -hmm. for the view by this one vanity fair journalist charlotte mm -hmm. klein few months before I, I wrote uh, my piece. 
she knew my piece was coming out because I'd reached out for a comment. And the next day after my piece, this piece that had clearly been pre-written by the same journalist that mm -hmm. she clearly has on retainer at Vanity Fair came out like slamming my piece. Mm -hmm. And her line was that National Review is doing Trump's bidding or National mm -hmm. Review is doing Trump's dirty work. Classic. Like, National Review? <laughs> <laughs> National Review is doing Trump's dirty work? Like, yeah. you know, it's I know she has to say those things now. It's part of the yeah. job description. Uh, as a final thing, um, I, I, I find people on the internet complaining about you all the time. <laughs> Who is this Fed? Where mm -hmm. has he come from? What does he want? Is he here to co-op the right? Is he here <laughs> to steal vital energy? <laughs> Defend yourself. Why, why, why should anyone trust you? Are you dangerous? Uh, are, are you simply trying to you know, enter dissident spaces to, to subvert them? I just want to win, you know. Um, now, do I want to win for the feds or, you know, for the right? You know, it's open question. The historians can debate that. No, but I mean, look, I am I have a foot in a bunch of different worlds, right? Um, I'm, you know, very much within sort of mainstream conservatism. Um, but I'm also, you know, speaking at Na the National Conservatism Conference. I'm friends with you guys, right? You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to a lot of the kind of nationalist conservatism ethos. I think it's the right way forward for the right. Um but that has a weird way of sort of making everyone <laughs> angry at you from varying <laughs> angles. There's not much I can do about that uh, besides like I actually think in many ways I'm more optimistic about the future of the right than I have been for a long time. Because I think what you're seeing is that a lot of the sort of mainstream conservative institutions are actually trying to reach out to or incorporate um, – you know, you guys are working with Heritage Foundation, which mm -hmm. you've gotten some flack for, but I think is, you know, I think Kevin Roberts is amazing, right? So there's there's an effort to sort of take the generations long work that the conservative movement has done to build these long lasting, powerful legacy institutions and to incorporate a lot of the genuine insights, I think, that the new right and a lot of the younger up and coming conservatives have. And I think that's, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a temptation to do infighting and pelt each other. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we all just want to win. Mm -hmm. And I think we should just be having the conversation about how to do that. And I think there's, this sounds incredibly squishy, but I think that there's actually a lot of opportunities for the kind of legacy conservative movement to use a lot of the institutions that they've built to incorporate the insights of the new right and to sort of move forward as a cohesive movement. Interesting. Mm. Was that cringe? No, it's a, I mean, look, like we, we it, I, I, my line on this is build what you need, reform what you can, destroy what mm -hmm. you must in that order. And that the people who often uh, bleat on Twitter the most about destroying institutions are often the ones with the least capacity to do so. Right. Um, Which is there, telling. Th 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 there will be time to like just utterly detonate, figuratively speaking. Um, <laughs> in you Minecraft. Know, so, some, some really terrible, terrible institutions. Uh, we don't have that kind of power yet. And the goal is to build it. And, and mm -hmm. that time will come and it'll be very exciting. And I'll just say like yeah. one more thing. I think that I agree. Like, so for me, I wanted to fund every gender study department in the country, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe make it illegal to, you know, to, to, to teach if, <laughs> yeah. if it's on taxpayer dollars, right? Like the th there, but the way that you actually achieve that power is by working within the powerful, often very capable conservative institutions that have been built by previous generations of conservatives, mm -hmm. right? And again, a good example of this is someone like Heritage, right? They're interested in fighting the culture war. Mm -hmm. um, and they're interested in working with, you know, young people mm -hmm. that actually are sort of have a fire. I mean, the, the, the argument to be made against this, of course, and I'll just give it some air is that, well, they haven't done it yet. What mm -hmm. makes you think you're going to do it now? Yeah. Which yeah. is an important question. And, and you know, that's what we say to these legacy institutions is that very open to the idea of partnering, but admit where you've made mistakes and where you failed and 
actually think critically about why and there's no point in putting new coats of paint on old rusting cars that are going to you know fall apart on the highway the second you pick up over 40 miles an hour mm. uh nate where can people follow you um and uh you know where can they send hate mail how do they keep up with everything that you're doing dms are open on twitter <laughs> at nj hawkman nj h-o-c-h-m-a-n so always welcome hate mail i you know get a fair share of it and yeah. it's always you know a pleasure to read very cool well thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, uh thank you for for everything that you do you actually do some real reporting which is exceptionally rare for uh young journalists i i generally you know scream at people if they tell me they want to become like a young hot take merchant um but you are one of the few examples of people who's, who's done it right so uh, thank you for not being a total grifter <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys appreciate it hopefully you guys enjoyed that uh Please feel free to send any complaints about Nate to Nick uh, at no, podcast no, 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 at no. AmericanMoment.org. Send them to Nate. Send them to Nate. Any complaints <laughs> yeah. about us, send them to Nate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, please always just send your complaints to Nate. Don't, 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 don't reach out to us about anything. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, if you write a five-star review for this podcast, which you definitely should, uh, you can uh, ask a question. We'll be sure to answer it on the show. Uh, we've done so before. Uh, a couple of libs you know, stormed us with one-star opinions because they didn't like Mrs. Holly a couple weeks ago. Oh, really? So come, uh, come help rectify that get our get our rating back up uh i've got over i think 128 reviews right now so uh, be sure to do so i think spotify has a function to review podcasts as well um go to americanmoment.org uh check out everything else we have cooking and be sure to tune in next week next week is episode 70 very exciting um we are uh honored as always that you guys listen through to the end we have no idea why you do um a lot of you are are quite prominent effective capable people yourselves and so we always appreciate you taking the time to to hear uh what our guests have to say we'll see you next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Mm-hmm.